listening to the Pros and Content Podcast brought to you by Notch, the content intelligence platform. This episode is part of our data-driven marketing leader series hosted by Notch co-founder and CEO, Anda Gonska. In these interviews, we chat with CMOs, VPs, and others who are ahead of the curve when it comes to both content and data and how they use both to move their businesses forward. We reveal really unique perspectives on the importance and intersection of measurement and content, as well as a ton of fun personal stories and career advice from these incredible leaders. Enjoy. Welcome to the Data Driven CMO Podcast. I'm super excited to be joined today by by Shiv, who works at Lending Tree, and who I actually met a while ago. And I think we've sort of intersected at many different conferences back in the pre-COVID days. And I think I actually recently saw you at one as well. So it's good to finally get a chance to talk to you after all this time. Welcome. Likewise, thank you for having me on. Well, I would love to start with a bit of your personal story. I detect that you have an accent, so I'd love to hear a little bit about where you're from and how you ended up in the U.S. doing what you do. Yeah, happy to share. So I grew up mostly in Asia, partly in Hong Kong, spent a fair bit of time in India, did high school in Dubai, undergrad in the States, worked for several years in the States, worked in Europe, did grad school in Europe. Along the way, as a lot of stories unfold, I Met a girl, fell in love, got married, <laughs> and finally decided to settle down in one country. And that's here in the States. And I now live in the Bay Area, and I'm married with two kids. Is the girl from the U.S., or how did you pick the U.S.? Yes, she is, very much so. Yeah, grew up here in the U.S. So I'm sort of a global gypsy in many regards, but it's just who I am. I feel it makes me... Comfortable in any setting and an outsider in everyone at the same time. And it makes for a better, more interesting life. Totally. I'm curious because, you know, I'm, I'm an immigrant. My husband's an immigrant and we have, we have a baby girl. And there's this assumption that we have that we have to stay put for a while, you know, to make sure that she has her whole childhood in one place. How was it for you to grow up being in so many different places? Like, what are the silver linings? Because I can tell what the issues may be. Well... You know, when you don't know anything different, it all just seems fabulous. Every couple of years, I would get to join a new school and reinvent myself. And it was sort of weird. Like in one school, I was really good at math. And then a few years later, I shifted schools and I was in another city in another country. And I discovered that I was actually had a deeper interest and a deeper affinity to English and creative writing. So there were a lot of really fun, interesting things about it. The other is it's taught me to have a greater sense of empathy for the more quiet voices in a room. It's taught me the value of friendships and how we all around the world share a lot more in common than, than we sometimes give credit to. And mm-hmm. it's, it's also taught me that there's so much to learn from outside your own immediate environment. And, and that's been such a valuable lesson because I have friends in Dubai who are marketers who are doing certain things and I'm green with envy of what they're doing. And I've, you know, friends in the UK and India in a similar way. I feel I am privileged and lucky in that regard. I love that answer. That is a, it's a really great answer. So it created this sense of connection to essentially everyone in the world, regardless of their background. 
That's a beautiful way to think about it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I mean, I don't know if we'll talk about this, but it was a big influence as I wrote my second book because I'm a shameless globalist as a result. And, you know, what we've seen over the last few years, this massive move towards nationalistic populism, I feel it, it actually hurts us as, as a species where we've stopped caring about the other and what everyone else thinks and how we can learn and grow together. And, and hopefully it's coming a full circle now again. The last few years in that respect were challenging for me. Yeah, I think I agree. I, I've lived in a bunch of different places in my life and I feel the same. I think it's an experience that would be amazing for many others to have. I'm curious how this life experience has influenced your decision to become a marketer. Yeah, you know what it's done is when every couple of years you're being uprooted and it, it sort of became a pattern. My dad was a career banker, so it was his job that took us around a bit. But when every couple of years your parents would walk into your bedroom and say, guess what? Exciting news. We're moving to a new city. And you sort of think of it as an amazing, wonderful new adventure. What that does to you is you actually plan a little less than you may otherwise have. At least that was the case for me. Because when I went to college, finished college, I wasn't thinking long term that this is what I want to be. This is my calling. Because I, all, I looked at my entire life in these couple of year buckets, because that's how my life would change. And it would serve as, you know, I would do something for a couple of years, hopefully learn an immense amount from it. And it would serve as a launch pad to try and do something differently. So that's what took me aging myself in, in 1999 to enter the digital advertising and digital customer experience space, because it was the, the heyday of Internet 1.2 and the opportunity to work with many different companies from Ford to Chanel to everybody in between. And in the US and in Europe, just seems like nirvana to me. And then from there, what made me take each subsequent, what in hindsight was a transformative or massive career decision, was really more driven by my mentors around me and my bosses who would say, why don't you go and try this? So what about doing this? Or I'm going to send you on a project to work out of the London office for six months. Are you game to do that? So I don't know if it's necessarily the best way to approach one's life, but it served me well. That's wonderful. Well, I would love to hear a little bit more about what makes you passionate about marketing today, especially in a world that is faced with so much uncertainty, so many pressures, so many conflicting messages, post-COVID world. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I think it, it couldn't be a more important and a more serious time to be a marketer. And I would humbly suggest that I don't know if we as a community truly embrace that total responsibility. And I say that because when we pull together all of our ad spends and our voices in companies, we're pretty massively influential in America, in the world today. The messages we put out there, how we put them out there, how we influence these tech platform giants how we try to steer and influence our CEOs and the rest of our management teams and our boards. 
it's a consequential, important role to have. The challenge, I would say, is in a post-COVID era where we just went through this massive tragic pandemic, we just went through a pandemic of misinformation as well, where we couldn't have greater tensions in our political ecosystem here in the States. I mean, I just have to think back to January 6th and everything leading up to it, or what's happened in Brazil recently with the sprinkle of effects in Miami or what's going on in Asia or Europe. It's a serious, difficult time. And I think as marketers, we have a wonderful opportunity to reorient and help everyone around us and the people we touch, the consumers, to, and I say this with a lot of humility, but to to help reorient to be more ethical and more value-driven and more focused on the things that bring us together. And an example I would give is uh, I think about this latest midterm election here in the U.S., and we have that House of Representatives member from you know, the wonderful state of New York who lied his way into Congress, Santos. In no world should that be remotely acceptable. And I draw attention to that because if it's not coming from our political leaders, the standards that need to be set and reinforced for how our societies operate, then it has to come from elsewhere. And one of those other places is in corporate America. And within corporate America, it is typically the CMOs and the CHROs, the heads of human resources, that are most attuned to society and people. And therefore, we have to embrace that that responsibility to do more, just not for our own company's growth, which we should obsess about, but also for society at large. So the job of the marketer to you is is really not just about selling a product. It's about bringing the kind of conscience of humanity into a better and better place over time. Absolutely. I mean, if it was just about selling a product, I would say that we have an overabundance of talent in the marketing community, given the job descriptions ahead of us. Right. Makes sense. Tell me, what is, in your experience, the hardest thing to explain to non-marketers about marketing? And I ask that more so from the perspective of you as a C-level executive in a large organization, explaining it to the rest of your peers, maybe explaining it to the financial side, maybe to the CEO, maybe to product. What's the hardest thing around that? Yeah, so I've built my career at Visa, PepsiCo, Expedia, LendingTree, Yergo, a late-stage startup. And what I found is the challenges can be very different. You know, in, in the case of LendingTree, we're one of the largest digital advertisers in the country, certainly as an among independent digital advertiser brands. We are heavily performance-driven, an incredibly impressive, well-oiled performance marketing machine that we run. What we have found, as everyone does over the years, is that's not the only arrow in the quiver to deploy. Mm-hmm. And that it's important to move up funnel and do more full funnel marketing and invest in those deeper, longer term relationships with consumers so that over time, and 
I always think about my job is to find ways to reduce the marketing spend over a period of time versus trying to grab more dollars, but to move in that direction. The interesting challenge we've had at LendingTree and where I see one of my responsibilities and challenges is that if we've had a muscle that's worked so incredibly well for us, but we're recognizing it's not enough for the future, how do we pivot the entire organization to look full funnel? And it does truly take the full organization because we're a marketplace business. So we're heavily, you know, marketing is, and what we generate is like a product. It's so core to what we have to do and what we do for our lenders. So that's the first piece, pivoting to full funnel marketing. The second, and to unpack this exciting challenge is, the first step is to educate the management team, the CEO on, and the board on what full funnel marketing is, why it matters, why we should care. The second step is to make sure we're putting in the right infrastructure, whether it's the analytics piping or the technology or the measurement frameworks or the selection of agency partners or the employee talent to deliver against full funnel marketing. And then the third, which is actually the first two are relatively easy, and I've done them a couple of times in my career. The hardest piece is when we're in that annual budgeting process and we're talking about next year's budget and we're looking at what we project for the PL and we're looking at our expense line item and we're having to make choices between do we invest in this infrastructure piece or in dialing up on the sales side or in this new, I'm making it up, this new corporate headquarters or do we invest in moving to mid and upper funnel? And those are the hardest questions because when you get to that third stage, everyone's around you says, and it's, you know, in my case, it's the rest of the management team and, and they're sincere about it. They say, okay, you've taught us about full funnel marketing. We agree with you. You've inspired us on what it can look like. And we're bought into the need for lending tree. However, minor wrinkle, today we don't necessarily have the dollars to support everything that you think we should do. So that's the trickiest of management conversations because that's where the rubber hits the road. That's where it takes a leap of faith and no amount of analysis, no amount of looking at the competitive environment, no amount of experts coming in can help with that. That's a journey. And, and it's so critical to pace with your, the rest of your management team and not be too far ahead or too far behind. So that's both the exciting and the challenging thing in a large organization that has a very large performance-driven budget and you're moving up the funnel. Well, I think that's a really interesting move and it's a little bit counter to what everyone else is doing in the market right now. I don't know why, but it does seem like a lot of companies traditionally have overinvested or have invested more, let's say, in brand and are now really focusing on moving towards growth and performance, or maybe even more so they're focusing on how they can get more out of the brand that they've created so far. And so I, I think you're in a really interesting and special position in a climate like this to be investing in brand 
and potentially could even have a competitive advantage in the sense that it may be cheaper to do so at a time when others are pulling back from it. But that I find that really interesting. What are some of the like one to two to three insights that you're using to retrain an organization that's so focused on performance to think about the full journey? Are you trying to take them from sort of this last touch mindset into like a middle touch mindset and then eventually into a kind of an upper funnel? Or are you just completely trying to pivot them into a different upper funnel mindset immediately? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a few things. And, and this is all hand in hand with the rest of the management team. But the first piece is uh, showcasing examples of where it works effectively. And rather than, you know, in, in some companies, brand and brand spend, believe it or not, can actually be a dirty word. And I mean, I did time at PepsiCo where everyone got it because there was no other way to right. market to consumers. You had to do that. But right. in an organization like ours, I sometimes get questions even now. Do we really need to do that? Why don't we, you know, use those dollars to juice up our bids in the SEM auctions and rely some greater benefits through that? Or why don't we invest in another analytics tool? So I still get some of those questions. And what's worked for me and the approach I take is, firstly, I take everyone for the ride. And so what I've shared with my peers is, folks, it's not my personality. I'm a reserved person, but I'm going to start oversharing. So you're going to see a lot more of the sausage making in marketing, the data that I'm looking at, the conclusions I'm drawing from it. And I'm doing this so that you can ask me questions about it. You can interrogate me about it. I don't know. And there's just one golden rule. What I then choose to do is still my prerogative because I'm not redistributing CMO responsibilities across the management team. That still rests with me, but I'm, I'm being more of an open book. And that helps because I also see my own blind spots through that exercise. You know, our CFO has an incredible perspective, our president of a marketplace business or insurance business. And, and having those conversations and debates is really helpful. So that's the first piece. The second, and this is a, an old playbook of mine, is I make my problem everyone else's problem. So we have very big partners to Google. We have some very strong agency partners. We work with a slew of other publishers. I have incredibly talented folks on my team. And I've posed this as a question to each of them saying, I believe this is the North Star but I'm nowhere near smart enough to figure it out on my own. Tell me, do you agree with it as a direction? And if so, how should we solve for this? And so it's, it's been fascinating, whether it's looking at multi-touch attribution modeling in the context of a specific platform, or it's been working with our agency partners who would share with us what some other companies are doing in other industries to what sort of cracks me up. I was at a Google executive meeting a year ago, or not a year ago, six months ago, and we had one of their really senior measurement leaders come and speak to me and to my leadership team. And just as a passing comment, right at the end of the conversation, he said, oh, you've probably seen that entire MTA model that we 
created for you guys a couple of years ago. And we don't know what happened to it, but that was a really interesting exercise. And I was like, wait a minute, I haven't seen that. And that's another piece to this, which is often the answers are already either in the business or in the ecosystem. So mm. I'm asking everyone for help. And, and so far, everyone's rising to the occasion. So first, really working closely with the management team, working really closely with the ecosystem. And then the third piece is, and I hope I'm not giving too much away, but I grew up mostly in duopolies, you know, at PepsiCo, the whole Pepsi Coke dynamic mm. and three years of Super Bowl campaigns and October, November, December, January were horrible months because we were trying to get out our campaigns and we were incredibly stressed about figuring out what our competitor Coke would be doing. And if ours wasn't better than theirs, then you bet we'd get calls from our CEO to at Visa, where it was a Visa MasterCard duopoly. And they were the challenger brand in this case. Visa was an establishment brand, but we knew we needed to pay incredible attention to them. So that's trained me to look and pay attention to our competitors very closely, but to do so with humility, because everyone is doing at least one or two things better than you are. And that's how we learn and grow as well. So those are just some of the things I think about. I think I wanted to summarize them and repeat them back to you in my own words, because I think there's some really beautiful nuggets in there for the listeners. The first one that really, the insight that really stuck with me was this idea of oversharing with the rest of the leadership. I think a lot of people would err on the side of undersharing, you know, going to the punchline, just giving the good news. But you're, by oversharing, I think you're creating a ton of credibility because you're demonstrating to them what your thinking process is and you're also inviting them to contribute to it. And so that level of openness and vulnerability, if you will, business vulnerability, I think is really interesting and important. The second, which is make, make your problem everyone else's problem. I like that because I think a lot of people try to solve everything themselves. I'm a solver. I've had to learn how to be a better leader and stop micromanaging. But the micromanagement tendency comes also from this idea that if there's a problem or you know, if there's a grenade, I'm going to jump on it. And what you're saying is actually there's a problem and there's people smarter than me. And what I'm doing is just holding space for them to do their best work to solve that problem. And I think that's a beautiful lesson in management, not just marketing. And then the third piece, which, which you talked about, really also deals with a ton of kind of openness and humility and saying that there's people out there who might be doing things better than you. So just always be open to learning. So yeah, I love, I love all three of those. They're good philosophies to probably just live by in general and lead by, not just do marketing by. Yeah. And let me warn you, I'm not good at it every day, but I try to be. <laughs> well, yeah, no, you're human, so you're allowed. <laughs> so give me a little bit more on what are some of the kind of difficulties, blind spots, and maybe opportunities for maybe for marketers, for technology companies who are trying to solve marketing issues. Just to give you an example, at Notch, we think a lot about the, the kind of connected journey idea, and in particular, the middle of a journey, we find that a lot of marketers struggle with illuminating the middle of the funnel. And it's kind of by design because teams are sort of instrumented to either be performance, last touch, or sort of first touch brand. So that's one thing we constantly talk about and see. But I'm curious, do you see that? And then second, what else do you see as areas of opportunity? Yeah, so... 
A few things. So, I mean, I certainly saw this even at, at Lending Tree, which is I lead a 160 person team and then our platform and agency partners. And we work across nine product or business verticals, three divisions, because it's an enterprise wide function. What I found is we have folks who are incredible at their jobs, but it's harder to get folks to invest in connecting the, the dots to the rest of the organization mm. or to the other channels and the other teams in marketing. And that's because we've grown up with really sharp metric-oriented goals and the marketers and the communicators and experienced designers are trained and, and they're like superhuman to run through walls to meet those goals. But when you're running so fast and with such fierceness, you don't look side by side and you don't realize that if you hold hands together, you can actually go further and with more intensity. So, so I think that's an organizational challenge. And I saw this in other organizations, the larger function, the, the larger the challenge are there. The second one, I would say that happens to all of us as marketers is uh, in many companies is we realize that we kind of have half a seat at the table when we join or when we assume our roles. We're sort of invited, but with a bit of skepticism to sort of the, the head table. And it means that we have to put an extra effort to earn that right or re-earn that right to be on the management team every day, day in and day out. The challenge with that is it takes our eye off being able to do other things. And the other things that often gets missed is developing really deep consumer empathy, being really that outsided voice for the business, really figuring out the dynamics of how to connect the analytics from upper to mid funnel to the bottom of the funnel to retention, the connected journey as, as you were alluding to. Some of that can often get missed or cannot get the attention it deserves. And, and I say attention it deserves very explicitly because what happens then is where I focus subconsciously, invariably, my team focuses as well. And it's, it happens everywhere. But what I'm finding and what I'm encouraging them and the way I communicate with my leadership is if I'm focusing here, it means I need you to focus in these three, four other places versus trying to support me, which I immensely appreciate. But it's a different way of thinking about it. So, so mm -hmm. I think that's a, another challenge that a lot of us marketers face. We find ourselves having to be inward oriented. And that means mm -hmm. that we lose touch with, with the core of what we are there to do, actually. The other thing that I think is a factor is uh, on the other end of the extreme, it's also been a discipline over the last 15, 20 years that's traded on shiny objects. And we've, we've all enjoyed showing up to that table saying, and I remember this, I was one of those in 2009, saying Twitter's the next big thing. Let's put Twitter hashtags in our Super Bowl ads. Let's think about digital as changing linear TV and not requiring video anymore. And then every few years, we find a new shiny object, the latest being NFTs. And I can't decide if we want to put the metaverse before or after NFTs. 
But sometimes we go too far with that and we lose our credibility both in an organization and more critically with people, with consumers, because we want to lean into what's new. And what that does is it often help us, helps us get newer, better jobs, helps us build our own personal profiles, but it doesn't do enough for that customer or the business as a whole. I think what's, what's interesting about what you said at the beginning is that in some ways at the, at the beginning you said it's important to break down the silos and you know, work hand in hand. And then separately, you said it's also important to divide and conquer because of the focus that maybe sometimes the marketing leader has to have that's very internally focused. It's to create credibility within the organization. And so it's sometimes, well, often actually, even in my experience, selling into marketing teams that the leaders under the senior marketer are the ones kind of doing the outward facing work the most and making a ton of the decisions, whereas the kind of top marketing leaders in charge of selling to the internal stakeholders the work and explaining it and and pivoting the strategy accordingly. So I think that's a really cool insight to consider. The shiny object, I have um, a follow-up question for you on that. You said at the beginning of this conversation that, you know, it's it's often the the role of the marketer in corporate America to lead the way in, in having a position, to really be a part of the culture, influence the culture, et cetera. I also think that in many organizations, it is also the marketer that embraces innovation first. And that's a cool thing. It's a great thing about, about the job. But I agree with you that it does have a bit of shiny object syndrome elements to it. So I'm curious, in your experience and the many different roles you've had, how have you learned how to balance? Like, when did you take big, bold bets? Did you, you know, were you wrong ever? <laughs> what did you learn from that? And, and where are you now in terms of knowing when to latch your kind of hook onto a, a new train? Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great question. So I built my career as, as the guy who was always on the, always was or always appreciated to be more on the innovation edge of digital. That's just who I was and, and be attracted to that side. And, and I really built my, a lot of my reputation and career around that. What I've found over the years is a few things. And this was something that I learned when I was at Visa and working with Antonio, my old uh, boss, which is, it's good to look at your career or your job scope as a portfolio, sort of like a VC and having a portfolio. And what I go into his office at the start of each year is I would say, I'm going to look at my responsibilities really as a portfolio. And what that means is of the 10 items that I have to take care of, five of them, I'm going to do amazingly well. And the trains are going to run on time. And I know what they are, and you and I need to be perfectly aligned. We're going to keep those trains running on time because that's the machine of marketing or the business. Three of those, I'm going to swing for the fences. And all three could fail, two could fail, one could fail. I have no idea. But I really want you to know about these because invariably through the course of the year, there are going to be a few folks who will be throwing daggers at me about them. And they're going to try and define my entire reputation based on that one out of 10 things that I would have failed at. And there are two, which are even broader thematic spaces. It's, it's sort of more like, I just want that flexibility to see how the year unfolds and go in specific directions based on that with my team. And those could be home runs, those could be singles, excuse the sports metaphor. It could be anything. And by looking at my 
my year through portfolio lens allowed me to serve the company well, especially with those core five things, but then also have the freedom to push into new areas that would provide multi-year returns, but not in the immediacy. Great example is when I was at Visa and I was in my first year there, I was responsible for the brand. And I started this program and in year one, complete failure. It just was. We didn't figure out. I mean, fortunately, I had other responsibilities and I was doing other things as well. But that one was a complete failure. And there were a whole bunch of people who were creating amazing and awesome organizational chatter around it that we should pull the plug on this. Shiv is being cute. He doesn't really know what he's doing in this area. We should stop. The strange thing is, fast forward nine years later, that little tiny program, which you know, I found a way to make sure I got to sort of try it again year two, now is, is an innovation program that's in 75 countries, thousands, if not tens of thousands of startups participating, does an incredible amount to bring innovation into Visa to serve the brand and reposition just the way the company operates among certain segments of its customer base. Hugely successful. And I launched it, led it for a number of years, and then folks who took over after I left have, of course, taken it into even greater ways. But that's an example of, it was that one of those high-risk ideas that I'm so glad I stayed the course with, and it's called Visas Everywhere Initiative. And, and that was partly because I was ignoring a lot of the noise, but it provided multi-year dividends. So to the original question, when we talk about innovation, firstly, I may have misspoken earlier, but I fundamentally do believe absolutely marketers play a massive role in bringing innovation into a company and driving that to. And my last role at Visa, I was reporting to the chief innovation officer, I actually moved outside of the marketing function. And I think we have those skills to, to actually move in other directions. The challenge for us is to be really thoughtful and strategic about it. So it goes well beyond the shiny object sort of feel. And then as we, or at least in my case, as I get into more senior roles, or now as a CMO, to create safe spaces for folks on my team to, to fail, but to keep going when it makes sense to. And that's hard to do, especially when interest rates are high and the Dow and the NASDAQ are down between 10 and 30%, but it's important. I agree. I think it's, I think it's important to maintain that as, as a creativity lifeline for teams, especially during a time like this. So I want to switch gears for a second because I know a lot of our listeners are folks who care a lot about content. Sometimes they are, they're content leaders themselves. Sometimes they're data leaders. Sometimes they're CMOs who want to learn Tell us a little bit about how you think about this kind of triangle between content, data, and brand or growth or both, because I, I know that there's a lot of innovation, but also a lot of challenges at that intersection. And I have a feeling, given the fact that LendingTree is not the easiest product to sell, that you probably have to invest a lot in content. So I'm curious about a bit about your strategy and a bit about how you have your teams set up to support that strategy as well. Yeah, great question. So there are a few things I'd say. So firstly, the one thing I knew I wanted to do when I was 12 years old was write. 
and I'm a writer by training and I'm a, you know, multiple book author and that's my first love and it's always there. And the downside is sometimes I write longer emails than I should, but I'm (laughs) self-aware of that. So when it comes to content, I respect and care immensely for what we do around content. And, and we have a large SEO team. That's the, how it manifests itself. And you know, we produce and edit hundreds and thousands of articles. And we have a very large content library. And it's a really effective machine. It's a revenue-generating machine that serves our business incredibly well. And you know, when I talk to those folks, I'm always humbled because it's set up over several years and it just keeps getting stronger and stronger. The interesting piece to this, and I actually think a lot about those interconnections, so I'm glad you asked the question, because as I think about the potential, we have, you know, I have really strong writers and editors on my team and SEO, UX folks, but a big focus of mine is to more directly connect the dots to our CRM program to our upper and mid funnel Mm -hmm. brand advertising or even our display advertising to connect the dots between our homepage and our website and mobile app experiences so that we're there with our users at every point in the funnel, providing them the right advice, the right perspectives, and sort of being an ally for them as they go through their own consumer journey. And it matters all the more in our industry because finances are painfully complex and emotional and often irritating topic. And we, we owe it to our lending tree users to be there with them and support them at, at every stage that we can. One tiny example to sort of bring this to life is we have amazing editorial experts and financial industry experts who every time the Fed would be announcing an interest rate increase, they would know exactly what it would mean. And through our PR team, they would get on air, whether it was CNBC or in the Times or wherever it may be, talking about what it means to the world at large. What we started to do was implement the most pithy sentences or the most critical insights from them Literally, not just in our articles and our CRM programs, which we'd of course do, but one or two lines in our display advertising, which is a performance-driven channel, so that we weren't just telling people, come to LendingTree to get a loan or to find the best credit card, but we were also saying, by the way, the Fed is going to raise rates next week. This is what it means. And this is how we can help you. And, and that might seem like a tiny random example, but it was us connecting the dots between our SEO machine, our industry analysts and marketing, our PR outreach with our display performance-driven billions of impressions channel. I love that. It's such a powerful example of the, the kind of value of this interconnectivity. And what you were suggesting marketing teams need to do more of, which is break these silos between them, especially because, as we know, the the journey of a customer doesn't happen in silos. And as a result of that, the more the marketing team can connect the dots, the better it is. How do you guys think of your kind of data and intelligence layer? Because 
data is a connective tissue to all of this. But what we often see is that it sits as a team separate from marketing. And sometimes it sits within marketing, but as a separate team. So how, how are you guys thinking about that? Yeah, so we have a centralized analytics function, really smart group of folks. They report to our CFO. So in our case, it is outside marketing. I mean, what we try to do every day is to have tighter and tighter relationships. And it's not just with the analytics team. It's with the data team that sits in technology. So it's a triumvirate between the three of us, three distinct groups. The challenge we have, as I think it's similar to others in our space, is we have a plethora of data. Oh, my Mm -hmm. gosh. We have so much data and so much reporting. And I've seen this elsewhere, too, that I actually feel I could go into one of our cubes and create a report and have it say one thing in the morning and have it say the exact opposite thing in the evening. And granted, I mean, I'm being a little facetious here about it, but I don't think we have a challenge about having data. It's more about what is a single source of truth and how comfortable are we with the unknowns? And that's like super important to me because, you know, human beings aren't like the data that we see about them. We are fundamentally irrational and emotionally driven. And so our data can tell us a whole bunch of things, but it'll never be the full story. And and so in our business, we're deeply data-centric, which I have immense respect for and appreciate. It makes my teams and my my job easier. The challenge, though, that we have to be a little sensitive to is it doesn't always have every answer to every question. And sometimes... What I've seen in companies, and I think it's a watch out for us as CMOs, is we only believe in questions and look for answers where there's data available. And if there isn't, we ignore the question completely. And and that can be a limiting way to be. That is a really interesting insight, and I completely agree with it. Also, an insight from my side, I think software builders and vendors have built software with the output being data and have built software in kind of silos as well. And it's because they're mimicking the organizational silos of the marketing teams, but there's kind of a moment of reckoning happening for these tools as well, because as budgets get crunched, I think marketers are really starting to wonder, where am I actually getting real insight, actionable insight versus where am I just getting kind of the mumbo jumbo that then gives me another 10 hours of work. So it's it's a really cool moment for our industry because I think we're getting very focused on what really matters and answering yeah. the questions that really matter with with as much kind of intelligence as we can. So it'll be it'll be interesting to see what the outcome is. That actually leads me to one of my last questions because we're almost out of time, although I'd want to keep talking for a few hours. But I'm curious how you think about this moment as a marketer and you know, there's tremendous uncertainty, especially in the financial space. So what do you hold as a North Star when you're showing up on Zoom every day, what you're telling your team, but also how you're planning for the next 11 months at this point? I mean, I, I think there are a few things. So, you know, firstly, I, I work for an incredible guy. He's a, you know, we are founder-led. So, so Doug is a founder, CEO of Lending Tree, And, you know, he started the company and he's been there through all its various iterations. And, what he reminds us is how much it's about helping people. And, and our purpose is to help people win financially. 
And, and I really appreciate that. And he's actually trained as an accountant. So you wouldn't expect that from him. But when he talks about it, you see the emotion, you see the deep passion and, and the care and, and the personal mm. pride and sense of responsibility. So that's a message I try to carry through. And, and I have the good fortune of being able to inherit that from him. The second is along those lines, it's a tough time in America. And I, I kind of think that this latest jobs report that came out early in the week is a little misleading because with high inflation, a lot of people in America are struggling. Everything's more expensive. People aren't getting their promotions or their raises. People are moving out of jobs. Some aren't applying for jobs. People are being hit in different ways by industry. The high interest rates is delaying the ability for people. I mean, it's so easy to forget, but I have to just think back to the time when I was in my early 30s and married and we were having our first kid and buying a new house. So, so important. And what a life, amazing life moment. But what people are having to deal with today is delaying that by a few years because interest rates are so high that they, a year ago, what they thought they could afford, they can't afford anymore. So in that regard, it's a very difficult time. And I use these messages and these realities of what our customers and consumers are going through to channel the energies of my team that we have a very important role to serve. People who come to Lending Tree invariably save tens of thousand dollars more than if they were to get a loan anywhere else. We have to fulfill that mission because now more than ever, it matters you know, to help people win financially. And that was what was tied to when we relaunched the brand last summer with Molly Shannon. That was at the heart of it as well. I really love the word care that you used You know, when you were talking about the, the founder, CEO Doug. And I can sense it even in the way you talk about the mission and the product. And it's such a good North Star to have, to really have care, not just in the way you build the product and deliver it and market it, but also ultimately to care about the end consumer, the person that you're serving. And so it's a really beautiful message to to end on. I really, really appreciate all the insights. I can tell that you've written a lot of books and that you're a writer because the way you express your thoughts is uh, just beautiful and concise. But I also really appreciated the message of openness and and vulnerability and as i said the message of care so thank you so much for this really beautiful conversation thank you so much for having me on thanks for listening to data-driven cmo take a moment to subscribe so you can drop in on future conversations with cmos who are ahead of the curve in content and data using both to move their businesses forward Learn more how the right data can reveal your organization's true audience journey at Notch.com. That's K-N-O-T-C-H dot com. And thanks for listening.